If you have your Bible, we are in the book of Acts. The Acts of the Holy Spirit, the first Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of God, however you want to define it. Chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, starting in verse 32, and we're going to make our way through uh, kind of a description of the early church and what was going on, a very envious position in, in my view, and as well as a particular experience in the church that nobody would vote for in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, this has been a, uh, the last several days in the early church's life, has been an inf- a fairly intense uh, few days. Peter and John, on their way to the temple, see a broken man who's been crippled for 40 years and say, what I have I give to you, rise and walk. And good deed, clearly a great day for that man, um, turns into now an inquisition by the leadership of Israel for Peter and John. And we've been through these stories over the last several weeks, and they're standing there giving an account of who did this. Jesus did it. The one that you crucified did it. Peter and John are released and warned not to speak any further about the resurrection of particularly Jesus, so they go back to the church and the other disciples, report what happened. They begin to pray, and something happens. And this text tells us we saw last week that the place that they were gathered shook with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were filled with the Spirit and began to pray for more boldness as the pressure is now on the church. So that's kind of where we are in this story. So let me just stop for a second and give you context of what we're about to read. If I'm just being honest, these two particular thoughts, one about the good things happening in the church and the bad things that are happening in the church are somewhat like a snapshot in the day in the life of the church. So as opposed to just taking them out as special moments, I I want you to perceive it as that is the way of the church. That's what God does in the church, and that's, that's what's represented in the church, both the good and the bad that we'll see in this particular day of the early church. I've got Four simple observations from the text today, um, and we're going to begin in verse 32 to 37, looking at, I would call, the best part of the description of the church. Let's read it together. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's, uh, before we pick it apart, let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's uh, presence in our text. God, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these true stories of the work that your Holy Spirit performed in the early church. Lord, we've asked from the very beginning of our study in Acts that we don't just read about another people, that God, you do the work in us as well. We want to be formed in the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, so we submit ourselves to this text asking questions about um, our lives in comparison to the life of a people who are filled with your Spirit. So God, do what you want 
say what you want. Don't allow me to say anything that isn't clear. And I pray that we all leave today more in love with Jesus and more filled with the Spirit, I pray. Amen. Here's observation number one from this text. That real Christianity has real impact, right? This passage begins by describing the radical effect of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is not just a, an amazing story for a particular group of people that we can't relate to. This is what the Spirit of God does in people. Sinners, by the way. There aren't any other kind. Sinners saved by grace. That's, that's what he does. In fact, notice a couple of words here. When, when they're describing, when Luke is describing these people, he calls them of one heart and one soul. Let me package that idea so you know how close these people were. This idea of one heart is basically the, the location of desires, the seed of desires or feelings and affections and passions and impulses. Now just stop for a second. Remember who these people are. If, if we back up to chapter 2 verse 5, when, when Peter begins to preach the very first sermon, remember who's there. Devout Jews from all over the world. So these people aren't from the same side of the street. They're not from the same culture, the same perspective, or the same colors. These are a, a variety of people now anchored under Jesus. And they're all hearing these disciples teach these truths about the resurrected Lord. And so here's what you see in this particular moment. These people's hearts were knit together to such a degree that the way it's described here almost sounds like family. Like if I were to describe my sons and what we do when we're on our own, same heart, same affection, same passions. We talk about the same stuff, cars and guitars. That's what we do. And these people had the same attitudes, demeanors, and, and loves and impulses. And the only way you can take men from all over the world and bring them under that one truth is because they all agreed about Jesus, the, the risen Savior. You understand? So one heart and one soul, it means they were united in all things. Something radical happened to a group of sinners, right? You see that in one sentence here in, in chapter 4. Real Christianity has real impact. In spite of where all these men came from and women came from, they were united, right? And that is God's impact on a community of people. So I suppose we triage our own life. In this text, in, in just four simple or three simple verses, we see real unity mentioned in verse 32, as I mentioned. You see the propensity for the sinful flesh to be all about itself, to now turn into service. Everybody's meeting each other's needs. That's pretty amazing. You see this one expression, great power. That's that word dunamis. This is dynamite. We saw it in chapter one when the promise Jesus said, stay put because in a few days you're gonna get dynamite, the power of God in the world. And so you see it showing up in verse 33, great power, so that they could communicate the testimony of Jesus. And it's happening here in our text. You have God's favor. That's what it says. And great grace was on them all. God's favor was on them, meaning where they went, there was success. And what they said, people looked at him and said, man, that's, that's amazing. Thank you. God's favor was on them. And it, clearly, the text points out to us that needs were being met. They celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. That was all they cared about. They cared for the needy in expressing that. They participated in the extravagant, extravagant, crazy acts of generosity, the likes of which I think we'd say we lost our mind if we did it here. Nothing belongs to anybody. Everything we have belongs to everybody. 
that's the most un-American thought I could think of, but clearly that's how it sounds, doesn't it? That this group of people from all over the world centered on Jesus said, here's what we're gonna do. There will not be a needy person among us and the way we're gonna pull this off is we're not gonna own anything. We're just gonna share with other people. Pretty amazing little story. And you see this example of Barnabas or Joseph mentioned here. Crazy example. What, what shapes a people like this? What could possibly form average, and I'm not, uh, this is what you have to understand. These are average people. They have the same inclinations and sinful nature that everybody in this room has. They have the same bucket of scars and failures that you and I have. But something's happened here. What, what shapes a people into this kind of church? Let me give you a couple of simple observations of which you probably could already make note of. But first of all, they had the love of God in their heart, didn't they? Jesus had done something to them. God had enabled these people to see each other as he did. They, they saw with the eyes of Christ on needs and, and others. That's how they saw it. They understood that people were more important than the things that they stored or the things that they owned or, or that they, quote, unquote, uh, possessed. They felt a bond and a commitment to each other at, at huge levels. I, I was having a conversation with Aaron Cass, um, who works in our worship and production team today, just talking about how things have changed over the years, even at Gilbert, and how uh, groups of people work together and how they work together and how it's different. And, and, the, and the reality of it is it's hard to put your kind of thumb on, you know, how precisely or what affected the way they've become. But the, the way I define how it is now is that there is a deep sense of commitment and lo loyalty to each other in the bond of Christ. That's just how it looks to me. And that's what's happening here. These people had God changed their heart and they couldn't help but reflect that heart towards, towards others. And because, and this is obviously also a part of the conclusion of the Gospels, because um, of how much they were loved, they were able to re reciprocate that love. This is the one that always kills me. You want to talk about the ability to forgive or to relate to others? Spend any amount of time you want to just looking in your own mirror about your own failures. Who could put up a fight then? Like who is self-righteous enough to honestly assess yourself and your weaknesses and failures and look at anyone and say, you know what, your offense is greater than mine. I cannot forgive you. See, when you get a look at the gospel, the gospel does a couple of things. Obviously, it saves us. It regenerates us. There's a new man created from the gospel, but the gospel does this really painful thing too at the very beginning. It really reveals who we are. Like it only invites you to it when it strips you bare and leaves you without anything and you go, I have to have a savior. Without Jesus, I'm lost. And so when you come to the good news, you come to the good news through this horrible recognition that without it, you are hopeless, worthy of condemnation, eternally separated from God. That is where the good news comes from. That's my problem. And you wanna be a liberated people to love people like Jesus did. See your problem without Jesus. And then when you realize how much he has given and forgiven you, then your ability to look at others and go, sure, sure, it makes perfect sense, right? To remember where you were, that you have been forgiven, that you're set free from your past, that God won't judge you based on those 
stories anymore. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed your transgressions from you. So how easy is it then with a clean slate to extend it to others? I didn't deserve, here's what I deserved. God's eternal judgment. I'm gonna give you grace because God gave me super abundance of grace. Does that make sense, church? That's why. And they wanted others to experience this grace that they received as well. And so they behaved that way to each other. Let me give you another reason why um, this people was shaped this way. And this is gonna sound a little bit cynical. I don't mean it to, but from the very beginning of our study of Acts, I've tried to put myself in the position of this early church. And part of me thinks I could do it too. I don't mean that arrogantly, like somehow I could just throw a switch and become this perfect example of an open-handed, willing servant. I'm just saying something about their context is pretty phenomenal. Let me give you um, kind of what I mean. For this group of disciples, these apostles, remember, the words of Jesus are still ringing in their ears. It was only a matter of months ago that Jesus was speaking the most powerful words any person had ever heard about God's grace come in the person of Jesus. And that stuff's still ringing in their ears. And remember, they walked with Jesus for three years. And Jesus said to blind men, see. And crippled men walk. And they did. Dead men rise. And everywhere they went with Jesus, they heard him say those things. And they saw him do those things. I mean, I just can imagine feeling super strong, hanging out with Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples, hey, by the way, son of man has to suffer. I'm certain they got it, but he told them. He said, but don't worry, I'll rise again. And he did. He died, they panicked, he rose again, and he spent 40 days with his disciples, showing him his hands and reminding him what he said, okay? So just imagine if you're an early disciple. You've been there, you've seen that. He said he would rise again, he did rise again. And then he says to you, early church, hey, I want you to hang out here. Don't leave Jerusalem because in 10 days, dunamis, power is coming on you. And don't worry, I'm coming back. So now let's just put it all together. I've heard his words. I've seen his actions. He says, wait for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit shows up 10 days later. Everything's right now for a disciple, right? Everything. My assumption is they also concluded that this return of Jesus was right now. Everything else has been immediate. This is going to happen now too. So when it came to their possessions, they didn't think possessions. They thought eternity. Now, of course, of course you can have my stuff. Of course you, I don't have a bank account. It's nothing because Jesus is coming back. He told me that and everything he's ever said has always come true. Now, I'm not suggesting for one second that what they're doing isn't real. What I'm suggesting to you is that the presence of Jesus made the difference. The proximity of Jesus made them a faithful, radical people. Here's the problem we have. We look at a passage like this and go, that's, that's powerful. Good for them. I could never see myself walking away from my retirement account. I'm 70 years old. I've been talking about the return of Jesus my whole life and so has centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of people. So I gotta prepare for tomorrow. I get it, I live in that too. 
I'm just suggesting to you, the closer these people were to Jesus, the more real his promises were. Therefore, their hands were more open than ours. That's what I'm telling you. And I'm, I don't think it's different. I, I, I don't know when he's coming back. I'm not offering you one of those stories where you can sell the farm and wait until he comes back. I'm suggesting to you that maybe it goes uninterrupted like we know until he's ready to return. I'm just suggesting to you if the absurdity of verses 32 through 37 strikes you as impossible, I will tell you that it's directly connected to the proximity of Jesus in your life. If he's closer to you in words and in power, then you'll be more radical. Does that make sense? I don't have to have seen Jesus perform miracles or have heard him say words from his own mouth. I don't have to witness the coming of the Spirit 10 days after he promised it. All I know is that everything he said is true and right and good. And the closer I get to those true, right, and good words, the more willing I am to believe in faith all the things that he says. I can be open-handed with my possessions. I don't have to guard my future. I can love in radical ways the people that are so broken because I I was broken. You understand? Power is in proximity. Let me describe this another way. From time to time, we'll talk about what we pray for. And here's one thing I pray for. I have my whole Christian life. God bring revival. Revival is this extra special move of God where God does more than he has to. He arrives in supernatural ways that you've never seen. I've prayed for that. Haven't seen it yet. But if it ever happens, if we ever get like this, let's just call it what it is. It's revival. That's what it would be. When the people of God live in his presence more than they live in their reality. Does that make sense? Super convicting. I mean, I, I spent all week with this feeling like a total hypocrite, to be honest with you. Because I'm so much more pragmatic than this. I'm so much more got to see it. If anybody in here can relate to that, that's me. But I was very convicted that if I struggle with this at all, it's because I am too pragmatic, that the presence of Jesus ends up being an answer to a question than a desire of my heart. So let's just challenge each other with that. You want to see this in your church? You want to see it in your family and in your life? I dare you to get close to Christ. I dare you because it'll happen. You will not think like the world if you get close to Jesus. You'll think like him. And then crazy stuff will happen. Amazing things will happen. Things that people look at and go, man, they're just, it's amazing. Great favor was on the church. It'll happen to us as well. Here's, uh, according to James, this behavior is the expression of faith. You know these verses, but let me just remind us. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is out clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. According to John, this behavior is the definition of love. First John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with just words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 
According to John, it is the authentic outflow of a legitimate Christian. That seems to be what he says, right? It's truly authenticating Mark. We live our lives not to be approved by God in the sense of God will be satisfied and save me based on good works. We live our lives because God has fully loved us in Christ and now we're free to love as he does, right? Because real Christianity, verses 32 to 37, has real impact. So let me just stop before we move on. If your Christian life does not have impact, this is not me saying anything. I'm not judging anything. I have no ability would you at least have the courage to ask the questions about your faith? Would you at least ask the question, does my faith look like the Holy Spirit is working or is it just a scent? Like you're just okay with the facts about the gospel, but your heart hasn't been given to Jesus. That's a good question. Let me go on now. That's the best part of the Christian church, right? The power is seen everywhere. Here's where it gets a little cloudy, and you're going to know this one too. The church is not perfect. Look at verses 1 through 3. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Uh, in the midst of a wonderful, beautiful depiction of Holy Spirit power and, and transformation in the early church, there were those in the early community um, of faithful believers there to perpetrate a deception. And their motive was pride. And there it is, day in life in the church, everyone present and accounted for, all of us, and Ananias and Sapphira, just to make it really clear, they were part of this church. They were part of the community. We have no reason to doubt whether they were saved or not. The text doesn't tell us. I suppose you could question that, but I'm just going to go with they were faithful in, in their confession, all right? So we would call them believers. They had participated in all the things that had taken place. They had heard the promises of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the commitment to come back and the wait for the Holy Spirit, and they'd experienced that power, but something wasn't right. In fact, that first word in verse one is no fun in this text. After 32 through 37, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful pictures of the church, but that's when you get scared. Good day, but bad day coming. And that's what happens here in these first few verses of chapter five. You've heard me say this before, and it's no, no uh, doubt familiar to your heart, but one of the biggest criticisms of the church is that it's full of hypocrites. And it is, when I would be the chief <laughs> hypocrite. Church is not perfect. Every church has its problems. Every church is full of people in the process of growing and becoming like Christ. We still have buckets of areas of weaknesses, don't we? Do you agree with that? We still have a tendency to rub each other the wrong way. I mean, the unity they have, the one heart, the one soul thing, we better pray for that one because I'm not certain I'd even like the people at 11 o'clock, let alone one heart and one soul. We're still prone to think impure thoughts. We are still prone to manipulate. We still struggle with arrogance and pride. 
we're still inclined to division and racism. We are. And here's what's worse about all those things. We don't think that's true. How dark is that darkness? We still have those struggles, but we don't think we do. We can't ever get better. We still gossip. We're still insensitive to our brothers and sisters. We still hurt people's feelings, and we're clueless about it. Welcome to the church. I mean, we're the first word in verse one, but, but. You're welcome, but we got issues. We got struggles. You've heard this said before, you know. I think it was Spurgeon who kind of made up the thought. Someone came to him complaining about the imperfect people in the church. He said, great, go look for another church, but make sure you don't join it when you find it because when you do, it won't be perfect anymore. The point is pretty simple. Every one of us contributes sin and dysfunction, not only intentionally that we know, but a thousand categories that we're clueless about, like things deep in our hearts and the recesses and places in our heart that are idols and broken things and judgments and bad stuff, and we bring it to the church, okay? So that wasn't meant to break your heart. I mean, I'm just telling you, this is the day in the life of the church. But let me tell you how this turns out. Here's another observation. Your character is way more important than impressing people. Look at verses one through four again. Let's just get it in context here. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. A couple observations about this particular scenario for Ananias is uh, Ananias and Sapphira didn't have to sell anything. This was not some mandate of God that they've refused to obey, okay? Okay. wasn't something they were required to do. Secondly, they could have sold something and given some of it money. They didn't have to give all of the money. They could have done a partial gift. They could have done that. Um, they could have said to Peter, hey, listen, we really want to contribute at a high level here, but, but we've got some bills we want to pay, and it would have been fine. Pay your bills, give what you want. That could have happened here. So the question should be answered, why did Ananias and Sapphira lie about the sale of their land? What would be the win in this for them? I hope you can see what's coming. The win in this for them was that they could convince other church people that they were really good and really bought in and really godly. They were trying to impress people around them to try to pretend to be more spiritual than they really were. I mean, just picture this. They're in this worship setting, okay? And all this power is happening and all this favor is happening. God's grace is showing up and here comes Joseph or Barnabas and he goes, man, I'm all in. I'm selling it all. and Here's all my money. And they probably saw the crowds react to that like, man, that's amazing faith. I wish I could be like that. And so Ananias and Sapphira quickly ginned up an idea. Hey, you know what? I liked that. Maybe we could create a scenario where people would like us like they like Joseph, and so let's work on this deal together. Let's just sell this property and let's lead them with the impression that we're giving it all. They were more concerned with looking good than really being good. 
appearances, reputation was more important to them than character or the sincerity of the heart, right? They were focused on the affirmation of the crowd versus hearing from God, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, This type of person shouldn't be unfamiliar, uh, apart from me now going to be coming after you. Let me just take you back to some of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees, because clearly it showed up there. Jesus condemns these religious leaders for the same issues of hypocrisy, where he says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected some of the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. The Pharisees, we've picked on them forever. Pharisees were really good at gaining popularity. They put on a good show but that's just what it was. It was a show. It was all superficial. It wasn't, it wasn't authentic. I found this. One writer said of the problem experienced not only in the Pharisees, but now with Ananias and Sapphira, he said it this way. These kinds of people are utterly dedicated to preserving their self-image of perfection. They are unceasingly engaged in the effort to maintain the appearance of moral purity. They worry about this a great deal. They are acutely sensitive to social norms and what others might think of them. They dress well, they go to work on time, they pay their taxes, outwardly seem to live lives that are really above reproach. The words image, appearance, and outwardly are crucial to understanding the morality of the evil. That's what he calls them. While they seem to lack any motivation to be good, they're intensely desire to appear good. Their goodness is all on a level of pretense. It is, in effect, a lie. Actually, the lie is designed not so much to deceive others as to deceive themselves. They cannot or will not tolerate the pain of self-reproach. A Pharisee couldn't handle a look in his own mirror. I need help. He couldn't get there. He couldn't look in the mirror and say, my righteousness doesn't matter. My righteousness hasn't gained affirmation from God. My righteousness doesn't fix my problem. A Pharisee couldn't do that. And Ananias and Sapphira thought that they could convince people that somehow their all-in impression was good enough for them. And so um, it was a lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, this is going to be the self-exposure part of this. Um, It would be nice to say that this kind of lie doesn't go on in the church. Like nobody's in here pretending. No, nobody's in here trying to impress somebody else. But I have to confess to you, I know, I, I know. I know we do it. And here's why. Because I do it. Not to be overly transparent, but I sat in Preaching Collective a week ago, no, 10 days ago, and I said, guys, listen, to be honest with you, this is one of the hardest pas- passages for a pastor to ever preach. Just brutally hard. For, for two reasons. One is pastors by nature are inclined to let you believe that they got their act together. And two, you're inclined to think that. When I walk around you, hey, Pastor Tim, hey, this, hey, that. You think I've got it all wired? I don't have it wired. I love Jesus. I believe the gospel. I'm in process. But there's this tendency for us to kind of want to believe things like that. So let me just disappoint you a little bit. I can be guilty of pretending too. 
Like I don't struggle. Like I don't covet or, or lust or hate or like I don't have those issues. I do. Like somehow all of my sacrifices are ultimately pure, that I'm all in, my hands are wide open. Well, somehow that maybe God would get all that I have, the very best of me. Here's what I confess to you. I really want that to be true. Like with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I want that to be true. But I'm on it. I'm just going to tell you, it's not always true. Some days I wake up and I just want to be mean. And by mean, I don't mean hurt other people. I just want to be selfish. I just want to think about me. And, and I'm, I'm saying this not because you can go, oh, isn't that great? He's being so transparent. No, I'm trying to say to you, that is us. I'm not alone in this. I don't want you to think because I'm up here and the Bible's open that he's where we should go. No, Jesus is where we should go. There is one example and one purity to follow and it's Christ. And we all have this issue and the issue is this idea that we're satisfied by having people think that we're doing okay. Like we got it covered, like we know what we're doing, like we always do it well. And that just isn't true. It's never true. It's interesting. When I say this at a preaching collective, if I'm looking at all these pastors and I say it, I can see it in their eyes. They know it's true too. It's true of all of us. Here's the point. When we pretend a spiritual life, we act as if God is not really concerned with truth. Right? Like somehow he can't see our hearts. All he can see is my words. And my words are lying, so I got God fooled. Well, we know that's not true. When we want other people's approval more than God's approval, let me tell you what it is. It's called idolatry. It is the very first commandment God said, do not do. Do not have other gods before me. And every time I want your approval, every time you want somebody else's approval, I have somebody bigger than God in my life. You understand? This is idolatry. This is the thing God said, do not do. Listen to Kent Hughes. He's a pastor talk about this passage. He says, we must be absolutely clear as to what Ananias' sin was. It was not casual deception. Rather, he faked a deeper spiritual commitment than he had. We share Ananias' sin, not when others think we are more spiritual than we are, but when we try to make others think we're more spiritual than we are. That's the sin of Ananias. I want to fool you because I get affirmed if you think I'm something special. It looks like that in our church, right? It's like we go to church, but my house is a train wreck. Like I'm going to church and I'm sitting in the pew and I stand when they tell me to stand and I sing and I raise my hands and I give a little bit of money and there's all sorts of war going on in my life. That's part of it. It's sitting down at communion and taking the elements and just kind of blowing it off like it really doesn't matter, like it's going through the motions. That could be what it's like. It's like, uh, you know, when we try to do the one another's of scripture, we're trying to love a brother or a sister in Christ, and we want to hold them accountable. That's a fancy word. We want to hold them accountable, but we're totally not transparent in our own life. I'm going to hold you to things that I struggle with. That's part of it. Implying to anybody that your life is the example to follow. Well, that's sort of like repeating Ananias' sin. Okay? You guys bummed out on the church yet? I hope not. Okay, so, so let me give you the last point and then we're done. God really cares about the purity of his people. Let's back up in the middle of verse four. We'll read it to the end of verse 11. Okay, and this is, this is uh, 
Peter talking, why is it that you, talking to Ananias, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I don't know where that office works in the church or who those men are that serve that role, but I I don't know. Anyway, verse seven, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband and great fear, I guess so, came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. Clearly, God doesn't do this anymore. Otherwise, this place would be empty, right? You know what I'm saying? I'm glad it was just a type. You know, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. God did this to make a point with Ananias and Sapphira. And that's sort of the issue here. People have a hard time with this story because God seems so over the top in his response to this. Isn't this just a simple deception? Well, that is the problem because we see lies like this is really no big deal. But in the economy of God, it's a big deal. It's extremely deadly. Let me try to give you a kind of context for how intense this was and why. Um, Remember, this is just the very toddling first steps of a baby church, just the beginning of this whole thing. The purity of it was absolutely crucial. This would be the equivalent of you going to the doctor and he does a scan of your body and he finds a small little lump and he says to you, we got to deal with that. And you go, ah, it's just a small lump. No big deal. No, we got to deal with it. Otherwise, it could kill you. That's sort of what's happening here. As far as God is concerned, in this early church where power has broken out, where they're loving each other and sacrificing, giving, and reputation is growing, and grace is coming, and all that's happening, and then the first first day where they all show up for offerings, Ananias and Sapphira decide to fudge the line a little bit. And God says, not now, not on my watch, not in the beginning. I'm guarding this baby. And so they both die. And fear, fear of God, the respect and reverence and awe of God and what he really feels and how he cares about sin and minutia, how much he measures those things matters, all right? we have a tendency to think and create in our minds a list of the worst sins. Don't hate, don't murder. We go down those lists of things and we create those as the most significant crimes we could commit against God. The reality of it is, however, in scripture, that living a lie in self-righteousness is the worst sin, according to God. Pretending to be what we're not. It's far worse and far more deadly The big sins are obvious. If I go around killing people, my assumption is you're going to hear about it, okay? And I'm going to go to jail. Everyone can point out that. That's bad. That's evil. We know it. He's caught. It's done. If I pretend to be all good, you applaud it. You're thankful for it. You don't know anything. And I don't know anything about you. That's how deceptive this thing is. The sins of lying and pretending to be something that we're not erode our heart and our character. It just undermines the whole thing. So this is not a recipe, so don't write this down. But if you want to suck the life out of the church, 
If you want to have the church have no impact, if you want to have the world look at it and point and make fun of it, if you want to bring reproach and shame upon the name of Jesus, then just live a lie. That's all you got to do. Just live that lie out. It's not the sins that are clearly obvious. It's the sin that we pretend that is good that'll kill us. Self-righteousness. So what do we do? I got three minutes. Here's what we do. Just to remind you of some obvious things in response to some convicting passage like this. Here's the first thing. We need to be a people of truth. Agreed? I don't mean gut yourself and everyone know your story. I'm suggesting that you don't practice lying, that you don't practice lying in the little things, right? Give credit for the work someone else did. Don't take it yourself. Avoid exaggeration. Be honest about your own struggles. Again, in precision, in, in, in the right way, with the right people, not with everybody. Don't pretend to be a people that have it all together. Refuse to blame other people for your failures. Own it. Little truths, right? What, how about eliminating the little lies to cover up your own neglect? Like, hey, I'm sorry I didn't get the text. Or, hey, I'm sorry I, uh, I didn't get the phone call. Hey, I'm sorry I, you know, I got a flat tire. Or the dog ate my homework. Whatever that might be, let's eliminate those lies. Here's the second thing I think would help us to be a people of truth. Remember, and this is huge, we, we depend on God's grace, not on our works. If you've been around for any length of time, all we do is ring that bell. You and I don't sit here before God based on works, not on our effort, and there is nothing about self-righteousness that have had God look at me and go, I'm really pleased with you, Tim. And he wouldn't look at you either, as nice as you might be, and find something winsome in you that didn't need his covering. We are all sinners all separated from God because of our sin and without Jesus, we have no hope. Grace is our favorite word, church. Grace is the word we live on. It's huge to remember that it's God's mercy by which we stand. We have nothing to do with our own salvation. We cannot be good enough. And by the way, you will not ever be good enough. You can't get there on your own. Our only hope our only joy is the gift of God's grace made possible through Jesus Christ alone. That is our anchor, church. Do you believe that? So if you're carrying around the burden of self-righteousness, if you have spent some time perpetrating an image that isn't true of you, and the reason why you do it is because you can't deal with having people see you for who you really are, then you call it what it is. Call it the idol of others and lay it down and say, all I need, all I need, God, is your grace. I need nothing else. And I'm telling you what God will do with that truth is he'll change your life. Grace will change you into a Jesus follower. Works won't. Works will bury you. If, if Satan could do one thing to distract the church, he'd have us focus on our behavior more than God's grace. That's what he would do. He'd have us living a self-righteous life. And if he did that, he would succeed in keeping the church off its mission. So, one, one last thought. Just do your righteous acts before God and other people. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will, your reward, um, you'll have no reward in heaven. That's pretty, pretty sobering. We start to play to the crowd, showing off how much we know. I mean, that's classic in a Bible church, isn't it? We read the right books. 
we memorize the right things. We have journals filled with truth. I mean, we have more truth than, man, you can shake a stick at. Ask me a question. I dare you. It doesn't mean anything, really. We'd like to, we'd like to perpetrate a position from our knowledge, but that isn't what God's into. Jesus warns us to do our acts of righteousness not to be seen by men. And if, but if we do, we lose that reward. So I suppose the focus of our life needs to be this, this private authenticity. Because if we spend time with God alone, we're not going to need to tell people we've been with Jesus. If you are with Christ, people will see you and see the outflow of your good deeds and give glory to God in heaven. That's what the text promises. Make sense? So let me just tell you when I, just before I pray, church, you're free from performance. You're free from self-righteousness. God hates it. Rest in Jesus and his grace. Chase hard after Christ. Get close to him and watch crazy things happen in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this um, sobering text and a reminder that you care about authenticity and the reality of the work that you're doing in us. I I confess my self-righteousness. I confess my tendency to, to pretend to be something I'm not. God, let me rest in your grace. Let us all rest in your grace alone and God, do crazy stuff with us, I pray. Amen.